All right. Uh, so basically the last group we want to deal with before we really start to focus on Christianity in the New World, it is specifically in America, the American colonies, the, Brit the original 13 more or less British colonies, and then later the United States. And I want you to notice that in my title, I, ha I am talking about the American War for Independence. I'm not talking about a revolution. And in the footnotes, we can go into that and why. Yeah, super important. Okay, uh, and by the way, I've got a ton of material to get through. We'll take questions at the end, or you can email me or see me later. And I don't want to brush you off. I really, that's not my intention, but I do want to get through this. So English Baptists can be traced to the 16th and 17th century Puritan or Separatist or Dissenter movement during the, the reign of James I of England. So we're going back to England, we're looking at the same group of people from where the Puritans came and the other dissenting groups. And most historians trace the earliest Baptist churches or English Baptist church to 1609 in Amsterdam, the Dutch Republic, with uh, uh, English separatist John Smith as its pastor. And in accordance with Smith's reading of the New Testament, he rejected baptism of infants and instituted baptism only for believing adults. John Smith, born 1554, died 1612, had humble beginnings as the son of a farmer in Nottinghamshire. He was educated at Christ College, Cambridge, where he became a fellow in 1594, uh, just like uh, John Wesley had become a, a fellow at a college. You had to be ordained. You were essentially being groomed for the priesthood. Um, and he was ordained as an Anglican priest in 1594 as well. And in 1607, he broke with the Church of England and moved to Holland with other separatists. So just like many of the other reformers, he is beginning to get a hold of copies of the Bible in English as opposed to Latin or Greek or Hebrew, and he's reading it for himself and beginning to think differently than how he was taught in the Church of England. Baptist practice spread to England where the general Baptists considered Christ's atonement to extend to all people, uh, closer theologically to Arminian beliefs. Particular Baptists believed that Christ's atoning work extended only to the elect and more closely aligned with Calvinist or Reformed beliefs. And even at this early stage, various groups of Baptists united around varying theologies and also various ideas about how the church should be constituted or governed, um, but they remained similar in the sense that they were only willing to baptize people who uh, were not infants. And again, this common thread of belief in only believer's baptism 
And also the idea of soul competence, where a person is able to understand the gospel and what baptism mean, is, uh, actually means and what they intend to say by participating in baptism. Um, and this is an idea that has kind of filtered through and kind of in today's evangelical churches, again, especially in the United States, but in other parts of the world as well, this idea that a person has to be able to make a choice. A person has to be able to understand the gospel. So that means we're not going to be baptizing little babies. Now, we could baptize children in some cases if it becomes clear that a child is able to understand, even at a basic level, what the gospel is. And so you could certainly, you know, if you're a Baptist, you could certainly baptize a child, a teenager, a young person, um, as long as you're convinced that they are able to make this choice for themselves. In common with most Reformation movements, early Baptists believed in sola fide, salvation by faith alone in the atoning work of Christ, and sola scriptura, holy scripture or the Bible alone, as the rule of faith and practice. Again, very similar to other uh, Reformation movements. Most early Baptist groups adopted a congregationalist uh, form of church government. In other words, no bishops. Uh, uh, as opposed to the Church of England practice with its Episcopal structure and form of church government. And Baptists simply said there are two ordinances, baptism and communion or the Lord's Supper. Um, again, differentiating themselves from Roman Catholics. Another uh, important figure in this early Baptist time period was Thomas Helwes. Um, that is a little bit dark on the screen, but I think you can sort of make out. Uh, you know, he looks like a typical um, 16th or 17th century English gentleman with his big high collar and his jacket and, and his beard. So Thomas Helwes, born 1575, died 1616, formulated a distinctively Baptist request that the church and the state be kept separate in matters of law so that individuals might have freedom of religion. He advocated freedom of religion or religious liberty, which was considered treasonous and anarchical. In other words, this guy's an anarchist. He wants to overthrow the established order in all parts of society, church, state, everything. It all goes, and we're just going to be individuals doing our own thing. At least that's how he appeared to some people, and certainly to the government, um, Again, this is during the time of James I. Remember, James is the English king who appoints a committee to come up with a translation of the scriptures in English that the common English person could read, you know, if they were able to read. Um, in other words, the guy behind the King James Bible. Um, but, uh, you know, James had made a concession uh, James didn't like Puritans, James didn't like separatists, James didn't like nonconformists, he wanted everybody to fall in line, and he wanted to get rid of all these other unauthorized versions of the Bible that were floating around, Coverdale and so forth. And, you know, so the King James Bible comes forth, but still he has problems with people like Thomas Helwes. 
in a short declaration of the mystery of iniquity, uh, a work that Helwes is famous for, he wrote, for men's religion to God is between God and themselves. The king shall not answer for it. Neither may the king be judged between God and man. Let them be heretics, Turks, Jews, or whatsoever. It appertains not to the earthly power to punish them in the least measure. It, really, he's advocating for religious liberty for all faiths, not just different flavors of Christianity. Truly revolutionary in his day. In 1611, the year the King James Bible came out, Helwes wrote to King James I, The king is a mortal man and not God. Therefore hath no power over the immortal souls of his subjects to make laws and ordinances for them to set spiritual lords over them. Now, in, in the England of that day, the idea that bishops are running the church and the, the king of England is the head of the church, all of this smacks of authoritarianism, of tyranny, of um, the aristocracy lording it over the common people. That's how it appeared to people like Helwes and Smith. And so it was all part and parcel of this whole system that was oppressing people and preventing them from worshiping God. So, you know, again, there, be, there begins to be this anti-Episcopal or anti-Bishop feeling. Helwes and Smith spent time in Holland together forming an early Baptist congregation, but as a harbinger of things to come, later split over Smith having rebaptized himself. Okay, so what happens when these Reformation people, you know, they, they've been baptized as infants, whether it was in the Roman Catholic Church or the Church of England, they were baptized as infants, and then they become convinced that only believers' baptism is valid, their baptism as infants is invalid. What do you do? You get rebaptized. I should also note that Smith had, um, you know, Wesley had, uh, um, you know, contact with the Moravians and other German-speaking Anabaptist groups. Smith did also. So while he's in Holland, he is connecting with Mennonites, talking, you know, with them, getting their ideas on these things. And Smith at one point actually decided he needed to be rebaptized and he baptized himself. Um, and this was very controversial. <laughs> Everybody, nobody was, you know, nobody was really going for that. Um, so Helwes and Smith split over this, and Helwes later returned to England and died in prison as a consequence of the religious conflict between the English dissenters uh, and James I. James threw a lot of them in jail, and a lot of them died there. Both Roger Williams, we have mentioned him before, founder of the colony of Rhode Island in the New World, and John Clark, his compatriot and co-worker for religious freedom, these two individuals were on the same page as Smith and Helwes, largely, um, and they are variously credited as founding the earliest Baptist churches in North America. Um, uh, Williams founded a church in, I believe it was Providence, Rhode Island, and Clark founded one uh, in another city in Rhode Island uh, at about the same time period. Um, so these two are bringing the Baptist ideas to the United States, and Baptist churches are being built, and congregations are forming. 
Many church history scholars describe four viewpoints of Baptist origins. And depending on what part of the church spectrum you're on and, uh, you know, your views, you might hold to one of these um, four views. The modern scholarly consensus is that the movement traces its origin to the 17th century via the English separatists. So just as I've described, people like Helwes and Smith are, you know, beginning to have these ideas uh, about forming a church um, that is solely going to be focused on believers' baptism. The church is going to consist of only believers, and um, that this is where it had its start. Some viewed that it was really just an outgrowth of the German Anabaptist movement of believers' baptism that had begun in 1525 on the European continent. So a lot of people say, well, there's so many similarities between these two groups. Maybe where it really stems from is the, the beginnings of the Anabaptists, the Germ or German Baptists. And actually today, side note here, um, even today, people refer to groups of German Baptists in this country who um, have retained um, a lot of the, they're very similar to Mennonites in a lot of respects. Um, and, you know, because most of us, when we say the word Baptist, we're talking about English-speaking people, largely, who have Baptist churches, established Baptist churches, but there are still separate groups of Baptists that uh, retain the, the name German Baptists, and it's just a different group, uh, even to this day. The perpetuity view, which assumes that the Baptist faith and practice has existed since the time of Christ, and we're going to talk about this more uh, a little bit later. And then there's the successionist view, or Baptist successionism, which argues that Baptist churches have existed in an unbroken chain since the time of Christ, and some of the people who hold to Baptist successionism maintain that there's actually apostolic succession, the same way the Roman Catholic Church and the uh, Orthodox churches claim, that in fact there were bishops, or rather, I'm sorry, the, some of the early apostles laid hands on individuals who then established churches that were essentially just like the Baptists of the 1600s and the 1700s, and even today. Um, and I believe it's the Southern Baptist Convention, which is the largest group of Baptists, uh, organized group of Baptists in the United States, has held to this successionist view. Baptist successionists maintain that there have always been groups of Christians and churches that held to the same doctrines and practices as the English separatists throughout church history. They point to groups like the Montanists, the Bogomils, the Paulicians, the Cathari, the Waldenses, Albigenses, Lollards, Arnoldists, and Anabaptists, and they say these are among the groups that were the forerunners of Baptists during the Reformation. And again, the Baptist successionists say essentially what happened was these groups had to go underground when the Emperor Constantine legitimized and legalized Christianity and created this whole church that later became known as the Roman Catholic Church in Western Europe. And it all started with uh, Constantine, with the Edict of Milan in 313 AD. So in other words, there were true Christians 
who are practicing the true faith. Um, but once Christianity became legalized throughout the Roman Empire, these groups, because they resisted submitting to this artificial construct of this Roman Catholic Church, they had to go underground. And so you have all these movements throughout, um, beginning from these ancient times through the Middle Ages into the modern era. Um, but the successionists say, look, these people have always been here. But for many centuries, because they were severely persecuted, they had to form these underground movements. Now, it would be very interesting, and you know, if you want to do this, you can certainly do this. You can look up these groups and see what they believed. However, they were regarded as heretical, and so a lot of their original ideas and writings have been destroyed. Because they were alleged to be heretical in doctrine, teaching, and practice, um, and again, here's a person in his Baptist history notebook, which is still in print, available at the Baptist Training Center. Many of these practices were similar to the Baptists. So the people who put forth this point of view say, you know, they were regarded as heretical. They were wiped out wherever they could be wiped out. Um, and their original writings and what we know about them have really been filtered through the official view of the official church. So were they really heretics? Did they really, you know, practice weird things and um, were simply cults? You know, they've raised that question. Um, so some have pointed out the group called the Paulicians believed in believers' baptism only. The Bogomils in Eastern Europe practiced only believers' baptism. The Roman Catholic Church labeled them heretics because they didn't believe in and practice infant baptism. Were they? Hard to know. The secessionist view was very popular among 19th century Baptists, particularly in the southern United States. But this view is no longer as popular as it once was. And some have viewed it as trying to read Baptist theology into the ideas of these minor, minority heretical European groups. Most church scholars today, the mainstream ones, regard present-day Baptist groups as having their origin in the English Puritan and Separatist movements. And Thomas Helwes, before his death, published the first Baptist con confession of faith titled A Declaration of Faith of English People, in 1611, again, the year that the King James Bible comes out. Other Baptist confessions followed. Particular Baptists pu published the first London Confession of Faith in 1644. And over time, more confessions were published, and as Baptist theology and practice developed, and different churches and groups were established, the category Baptist came to include many different elements. Individual churches often had their own confession of faith and a common confession of faith if they were a member of a denomination. Um, so a lot of Baptist churches simply remained independent and never associated with or joined a denomination, but later denominations would develop. Some historically significant Baptist doctrinal documents include the 1689 London Baptist Confession of Faith, the 
1742 Philadelphia Baptist Confession, the 1833 New Hampshire Baptist Confession of Faith. And I think you can begin to see, you know, this is a very loose movement. It can incorporate lots of different groups with the same basic label of Baptist. And that's true, and that's continued to this day. Most Baptists are evangelical in doctrine, and I think we know basically what that means, but we must realize Baptist beliefs can vary due to the congregational governance system that gives autonomy to individual local Baptist churches. Right here in the Dayton area, we have quite a few independent Baptist churches. They do have informal associations between themselves, um, but there is no official, they don't belong to any official denomination, and they are truly independent. Historically, Baptists have played a key role in encouraging religious freedom and separation of church and state. For 17th and 18th century English Baptists, the New World proved to have a powerful draw. Here was a new world waiting to hear the gospel of Jesus Christ and an opportunity to form new communities, unhindered, or so they thought, by old world religious forms and restrictions. Like the Methodists, Baptist ministers soon adopted the practices of the itinerant ministers who went around riding a circuit. Uh, and a lot of these ministers might even not have been what most people would consider properly ordained. If they simply felt called to preach the gospel, they'd jump on their horse and ride off and do so. And Baptists, both laypersons and ordained ministers, were active in establishing Baptist churches and other institutions in the colonies. In 1764, five prominent Baptist ministers established the college in the English colony of Rhode Island and Providence Plantations, the seventh institution of higher education in the original 13 colonies. Just as in Britain, all these English people, you know, go to college, they go to Oxford, they go to Cambridge, Maybe they go to some colleges or universities on, in continental Europe. But when they come to the New World, right away they want to establish institutions where people can be educated. Now, the Baptists found themselves shut out from um, the universities that were formed by other uh, groups. So the goal of these Baptists was to provide a place for Baptists who were not widely welcomed at other educational institutions. So there were um, colleges that were founded by Puritan or Congregationalist churches, and then uh, universities that had a Church of England or Anglican origin. Harvard, Yale, and the College of New Jersey, later known as Princeton, today we refer to these as, you know, these are some of the Ivy League schools, very prestigious. They were founded in the 1600s by prominent Congregationalists or Puritans. The Puritans eventually, you know, going from the 1600s into the 1700s and beyond, became known in America as the Congregationalists. So if you see me using Congregationalists with a capital C, don't be confused, Puritan origins, reformed in theology, baptizing infants, you know, very Calvinistic in their beliefs, although later the Congregationalists would embrace modernism and all kinds of things, but... In this period, they're still pretty, you know, what we would think of as Reformed and Bible-believing. 
colleges founded by the American Episcopal Church were the Academy of Philadelphia, which later became the University of Pennsylvania, another very prestigious university, uh, it still exists. King's College, which later became Columbia, again, very prominent, well-known university, still exists. And the College of William and Mary in Virginia, which still exists to this day. And of course, as time has gone on, these schools have long since moved past any religious uh, connection or affiliation. Now, as might have been expected, controversy arose between the Baptists, practicing and advocating for only believers' baptism, and the Puritan Congregationalists, practicing and advocating for infant baptism. The predominantly Baptist colony of Rhode Island, right next to the Massachusetts Bay Colony, Connecticut, and the Plymouth colonies were regarded as heretical by the Puritans. So here we are back in the same situation that we were in England. You know, there's all this strife over religious practice and belief. This source of friction between these colonies dates to around the 1660s, you know, when the Baptists really start showing up in numbers. And for about 100 years, the Congregationalists sought to eradicate the Baptists in Rhode Island, just as they had sought to eradicate the Roman Catholics in Maryland. Remember, the colony of Maryland was founded originally. The original intent was it, it would be a haven for Roman Catholics in the New World. And the Puritans did their utmost to just root out the Roman Catholics, and they were eventually successful. Several colonies passed laws to outlaw the Baptists and other groups, such as the Quakers. Okay, so if you think this idea of separation of church and state, religious freedom, goes back to the founding of America, you would not be correct. Um, now, before the American War for Independence, about 494 Baptist congregations existed in the United States. By 1795, that number had risen to about 1,152 U.S. Baptist congregations. So in other words, during this period, the colonial period through the war and afterwards, Baptists increased in number. Apparently, those itinerant preachers were successful in spreading the gospel. Baptists spread to the southern colonies and began to evangelize and establish churches in Virginia. Patrician Virginia, with its opulent Anglican planters, who controlled local government, did not look favorably upon the austere, plain-living Baptists. Okay, so if you want to talk, you know, in the United States, we have no aristocracy. We don't have earls. We don't have baronets. We don't have dukes. We don't have a king. But we had rich plantation owners in the South, and they continued to look to England. Um, they had relatives in England. A lot of times they sent their sons to go to university in England rather than being educated in the colonies. Um, they very much still had that English um, class society mentality. Um, but the Baptists, you know, they're kind of scrappy. They appeal to the lower classes. They have to. That's all they, you know, that's all they've got. Um, they, you know, they aren't rich people. They, you know, their message appeals to the ordinary common man. 
And so that's, where, how, that's how they spread the gospel. And certainly on the frontier, as rough as it was, as difficult as uh, living conditions were on the frontier, a lot of times the people they were ministering to were, you know, just frontier people. They weren't rich. They weren't aristocratic in most cases. Now, by moving south, the Baptists began to encounter the chattel slavery system of the southern plantations. Due to the nearly universal acceptance of slavery in the 17th and 18th centuries, many white Baptists simply accepted the peculiar institution as it came to be known, unlike many of their Methodist counterparts. If you recall, when we were talking about the Methodists, most Methodists were very much opposed to slavery as it was practiced in the American South and also as it practiced in the North. There were uh, African slaves being held in the North and owned by uh, people in the Northern colonies. Baptist ministers, however, sought to evangelize enslaved persons along with their masters, as did the Methodists. So they may not have been actually opposed to this particular form of slavery as it was practiced, um, but their goal was, we're just gonna evangelize everybody. We're not gonna upset the social order but we will preach the gospel to everyone. Now, many slaves did become Christians, but due to the racism and segregation that was fostered by this system, they found that their Christian religious life was severely constrained. And planters began to establish churches for slaves on the plantations. If a planter was a Methodist, for example, he would establish a meeting house on the plantation that would be served by an itinerant Methodist minister. And here um, is a picture of a structure. The structure is still standing. Uh, it's, today it's in a park. Um, basically what it was, it was um, part of a southern plantation, which was later turned into a park and you can tour it. You can see the different buildings on the plantation. But this building was known as the Negro Baptist Church. It's at Friendfield Plantation near Georgetown, South Carolina. And again, you can go tour that park and see this building. And this was originally built in the 1850s for the enslaved persons of this plantation, still standing. I don't know if it is being used as a church, probably not. Now, contrast the Southern Plantation Baptist Church with this New England Congregationalist Meeting House built in 1773. This is another structure that is currently standing and you can go tour it. It's in Sandown, New Hampshire, uh, and it's, um, it might look like it's built of brick, it's actually not. It's wood construction just like the Slave Plantation Church and amazingly similar architectural styles. This was how most churches looked that were built in the 1700s. In some cities like Boston, the churches were bigger and fancier. Anglicans built bigger and fancier churches, again, hearkening back to what they had known in England. But the vast majority of Americans who were Christians were worshiping in these simple, plain structures. All right, we're going to conclude here with the Baptists. Uh, you know, we brought them from England into North America. We've seen that, like the Methodists, they're spreading. 
They are resisting uh, religious opposition from other groups. And this takes us in our timeline up to the period which we are going to talk on next time, Christianity and slavery in America. That's for next time. But now I want to talk about the effect of the American War for Independence on the churches. Now, why am I talking about this as a war for independence? You have all, I'm sure, heard of it and thought of it as a revolution. Well, here's my simple distinction. Some people might say it's a distinction without a difference. I say it is truly a distinction. And that is, it's a revolution if you topple the government, kill the king, and, you know, essentially mount a palace coup. Um, the Americans didn't want to kill King George. They just wanted freedom from him. And they wanted freedom from this parliament. They kept enacting legislation that oppressed them. They wanted true representation in parliament if we're, they were gonna remain as part of that system. So what they were fighting for was not a revolution. In other words, destroying the social order. They just wanted to make a change so that they were governing autonomously. Now, religion certainly did play a major role in this war by offering a moral sanction for opposition to British rule. This gave the average American colonist the sense that independence from Britain was justified in the sight of God. By turning colonial resistance into a righteous cause and by crying the message to all ranks in all parts of the colonies, ministers often did the work of secular radicalism as well as, or better than, non-religious political radicals. Ministers served the American cause in many capacities during the war. As military chaplains, members of state or colonial legislatures, constitutional conventions, and what would become later the National Congress. Some even took up arms, leading continental troops in battle. The political upheaval split some denominations, as you could certainly expect would happen, notably the Church of England, the Episcopal Church in America, whose ministers were bound by oath to support the king. The Quakers, who were traditionally pacifists, also endured a split. Some Quakers said, this war is a just war. We need to pick up guns and fight. And so some Quakers split off and formed little groups of pro-war Quakers, hard as it is to believe, um, because they are so traditionally pacifistic, but they, you know, they did fight. Religious practices uh, suffered in certain places because of the absence of ministers and the destruction of churches. You know, war disrupts everything. So, you know, your church might be blown up, might be burned down. Um, you know, difficult times. Joseph Galloway, uh, his dates are 1731 to 1803, a former speaker of the Pennsylvania Assembly when it was a colony and close friend of Benjamin Franklin opposed the, in his views, revolution and fled to England in 1778. He wrote historical and political reflections on the rise and progress of the American rebellion published in England. Galloway believed that the revolution was to a considerable extent out, it had sprung out of a religious quarrel caused by Presbyterians and Congregationalists 
whose ideas about secular government were shaped by their church governments. So in other words, if you have these people who are rebelling against the Church of England and forming new religions, these Puritans who become Congregationalists, Presbyterians who structure their churches very differently and they're rejecting this idea of Baptists or Lords in the church, then you know, they are, what they're essentially doing is promoting democracy. And you know, that's a big problem. In the, in, in the minds of the loyalists. So the, the Americans who um, were basically on the side of Britain became known as the loyalists, and those who advocated breaking away from Britain became known as patriots. Um, you know, they had names for each other that weren't very nice. But basically, America's being split, and there are a lot of people who don't want to break away from Britain and end up either moving up to Canada or heading back to Britain or some other part of the British Empire because they can't stay in uh, what is becoming the United States. For many English, the American War for Independence reminded them of the English Civil Wars, which we've talked about. And I, I talked, initially I talked about the Civil War. Actually, there were a whole series of wars that could be described as civil wars taking place in the 1600s. But we know that eventually the English killed their own king in 1649. They beheaded Charles I, son of James I. And they established what they called the Commonwealth of England, or the Protectorate, and Oliver Cromwell became their ruler or king, so to speak, or lord, they called him the Lord Protectorate. There's that word lord again. Americans just really don't like that. However, this is the British view. This is how the British are looking at America. You know, it's the same thing all over again. And at the same time, there's revolution, real revolution taking place in France. Enlightenment ideas are leading the French to you know, eventually execute their king and establish a tyrannical um, totalitarian rule. Um, and France lost it from there. Anyway, <laughs> again, we, we can't get into France too much there. Um, but essentially, the British view of the American colonies was that the colonies owed the empire for everything it had provided. It provided protection, economic security, supplies, you name people, resources, all of it. It was the British prerogative that Parliament should regulate and dictate conditions and terms about the taxation and government of the colonies. But the American colonies were not uniformly British in origin. Yes, you've got a lot of people who have uh, English ancestry, but you have a lot of people who are coming in who are not of English ancestry. There are different political philosophies and enlightenment ideas that advocated for Republican forms of government as opposed to monarchies, and these began to circulate widely. Hardening of the British position against American grievances ultimately led to the split. Honestly, I think if the British had sat down with the colonists and said, let's work this out, let's see if we can remain united, had they taken a conciliatory, this is just my view, had they taken a conciliatory posture and provided them with the representation in Parliament that the colonists wanted, 
They could have continued on and they would have been like Canada and Australia and all these other places that were parts of the British Empire but didn't break away in such a dramatic fashion. Now, one American minister who was politically active was Jonathan Mayhew, 1720 to 1766. He was a noted congregational minister at Old West Church, Boston. In politics, Mayhew bitterly opposed the Stamp Act and urged, and we'll talk about the Stamp Act in a little bit, hopefully we'll have time, urged the necessity of colonial union or communion drawing together to secure colonial liberties. His 1750 and 1754 election sermons, you know, back then they didn't worry about the IRS telling the churches, you can't preach on politics or you'll lose your tax-exempt status. None of that. So ministers, you know, if they wanted to hammer on political stuff from the pulpit, they, they could and they did. And he espoused the American viewpoint, the cause of liberty, and the right and duty to resist tyranny. Uh, other famous sermons included the snare broken. So he was, he was from the pulpit. He was um, speaking and writing against the British and for the liberty of uh, the American colonies. A famous Mayhew sermon was titled Discourse Concerning Unlimited Submission. The ser sermon was first given in 1749 on the 100th anniversary of the execution of Charles I. Mayhew knew his history and the timing was not a coincidence. It was published in England as well as in America Mayhew began with the ancient Britons who chafed under Roman rule and had political institutions that guaranteed basic rights to the people. England's monarchs originally held their throne, according to Mayhew, solely by grant of parliament. So ancient English kings ruled simply by the voluntary consent of the people. So in other words, the king has his place of position and power not because he has some divine right like most European kings claim to have, or that um, it was this way because, uh, you know, this is the established order and this is simply just how it is. But in fact, the English selected their kings and gave permission to the kings to have the power that they did. And not everyone would agree with that. Certainly. After 40 pages of such historic, a 40-page sermon, you, you know, yeah, Puritans. <laughs> After 40 pages of such historical discourse, Mayhew reached his major point, the essential rightness of the execution of an English king when he too greatly infringed on British liberties. In 1765, with the fresh provocation of the Stamp Act, Mayhew delivered another rousing sermon on the virtues of liberty and the iniquity of tyranny. The essence of slavery, he announced, consists in subjection to others, whether many, few, or but one, it matters not. The day after his sermon, a British mob attacked Chief Justice Thomas Hutchinson's house, and many thought Mayhew was responsible. And it's interesting, with Mayhew's very strong beliefs on freedom, eventually he would deal with the issue of slavery uh, in the American South and throughout the colonies, and he would eventually begin to advocate for allowing slaves to return to Africa, but that's a story for another time. 
In the discourse, Mayhew asserted that resistance to a tyrant was a glorious Christian duty. In offering moral sanction for political and military resistance, Mayhew anticipated the position that many ministers took during the conflict with Britain. And during this period, there uh, began to circulate rumors that the Church of England was going to clamp down and impose Anglican bishops in the colonies. Remember, these Anglican churches are essentially run, especially in places like Virginia, by the rich uh, landowners. You know, they control the churches, they control everything else. They do not want to give up control, and they do not want bishops sent from England to rule over them. Colonists were afraid they would be persecuted for their religious convictions if uh, they had to subject themselves to bishops. Now, I don't, this is kind of tough to see. The writing is super small. I tried to blow it up. But this is a cartoon or a sketch uh, that was circulated in an American broadside. Broadsides were big pieces of paper, and they were like newspapers. They were the newspapers of the colonial era. Just one page, really big. And um, they published all kinds of things. And they would publish these cartoons, these drawings. This is a, a drawing of American colonists pushing a ship with a British bishop clinging to the mast. Um, and uh, they're pushing it back towards England. And this bishop is praying, Lord, now lettest thou, thou thy servant depart in peace. And in the lower left-hand corner, there's a man holding a book. And this is, Cal it's written, you can't see it, um, had to blow it up on the computer. I can't show it that large here. But it's, it says Calvin's works. And so they're taking this book and kind of like, here you go. Go back to the old world. We don't want you here. <laughs> In the cartoon, the crowd shouts slogans, liberty and freedom of conscience, no Lord, spiritual or temporal in New England. And shall they be obliged to maintain bishops that cannot maintain themselves? You know, do we have to, um, you know, put up with bishops and support them? We can barely support ourselves. Uh, so, you know, there was a lot of pushback. Not, not only were American colonists concerned about bishops coming over from England, they were already incensed that they had to support British troops British, remember, there came a period where British troops were quartered in individual colonist houses. You know, that, that's like having the enemy bring his soldiers to your land, have them live in your house, and you've got to feed them and clothe them and take good care of them. And if you had a British officer in your home, he would treat you like a slave. And the Americans were very upset about that. Um, another minister, Abraham Cateltus, celebrated the American effort as the cause of truth against error and falsehood, the cause of pure and undefiled religion, against bigotry, superstition, and human invention. In short, it is the cause of heaven against hell, of the kind parent of the universe against the prince of darkness and the destroyer of the human race. So they used some very flowery language to describe that. Now, the British fought back in print. And this is a reproduction of a British cartoon showing uh, the ragtag, poverty-stricken American colonists 
lining up with their rifles, and there's a cannon, a guy who looks like might be George Washington in the lower right-hand corner. I tried to read a lot of what was written here, but I couldn't get it clear enough. But essentially, um, what there's, you know, this is a mockery of the Americans, and um, then there's a, uh, there's a pastor. The pastor is shown a third from the right. He's got that flat, uh, brimmed hat, kind of looks like a Quaker. Um, could, could be, you know, maybe they're taking a pot shot at Quakers. And his banner references uh, Oliver Cromwell. So again, this is the British view. These, you know, upstart um, American rebels, you know, what a bunch of losers, essentially. And the minister's banner actually reads, "'Tis old Oliver's cause, no monarchy nor laws." James Caldwell, 1734 to 1781, a Presbyterian minister in New Jersey, one of the many clergymen who served as chaplains during the Revolutionary War. At a battle in New Jersey, uh, his, his company was running out of wadding. And those of you who are into guns and know anything about the firearms that the colonists had, you had to stuff, you, you know, you had to manually load your rifle or whatever you had, and you needed wadding. You need this paper wadding. And they ran out of it. He went to the church, scooped up as many Watts hymnals, remember Isaac Watts, distributed them to the troops and said, put Watts into them, boys. And now, of course, the war inflicted deeper wounds on the Church of England in America than on any other denomination because the King of England was the head of the church. Anglican priests at their ordination swore allegiance to the king. The Book of Common Prayer offered prayers for the monarch, beseeching God to be his defender and keeper, giving him victory over all his enemies, who in 1776 were American soldiers as well as friends and neighbors of American Anglicans. Loyal to Loyalty to the church and to its head could be construed as treason to the American cause. So a lot of ministers in, in these Anglican churches are beginning, beginning to realize, I'm either going to have to break from England myself or I'm going to have to leave. Splits took place between the northern clergy, many of whom were loyalists, and the southern clergy, many of whom were patriots or rebels. Patriotic American Anglicans loathed to discard the Book of Common Prayer, revised it to conform to the political realities. The Maryland Convention voted in 1776 that every prayer and petition for the King's Majesty in the Book of Common Prayer be henceforth omitted in all churches and chapels in this province. So what did they do? Well, it's hard to reprint whole books. This is expensive. They take handwritten strips of paper with prayers composed for the Continental Congress and paste them over the pages in the prayer book that contain prayers for the king. Problem solved. You know, American ingenuity at its finest. <laughs> the petition that God keep and strengthen in the true worshiping of thee in righteousness and holiness of life, thy servant George, our most gracious king and governor, was changed to a plea that it might please thee, God, to bless the honorable Congress with wisdom to discern and integrity to pursue the true interest of the United States. 
In Philadelphia, the Reverend Jacob Duchesne, rector of Christ Church, an Anglican church, called a special vestry meeting on July 4, 1776, the Declaration of Independence, to ask whether it's advisable for the peace and welfare of the congregation to shut up the churches or to continue the service without using the prayers for the royal family. The vestry decided to keep the church open, but replaced the prayers for the king with a prayer for Congress, that it may please thee to endue the Congress of the United States and all others in authority, legislative, executive, and judicial, with grace, wisdom, and understanding to execute justice and to maintain truth. More than half of Anglican priests in America, unable to reconcile their oaths of allegiance to George III with the independence of the United States, relinquished their pulpits during the war. Some took up arms and fought on the British side, and some published scathing essays and sermons on the treachery of preachers who sided with the rebels. In the years following American independence, Anglican ministers who had remained in the colonies began planning for an independent American church. A series of conferences in the 1780s struggled with the transition. At a convention in 1789, the Protestant Episcopal Church in the United States of America, and this was its official name until 1964, was formed. A church government or a constitution and revised Book of Common Prayer believed to be compatible with the rising Democratic Republic nation were adopted. Well, I've gone over time. I apologize for that. Um, we probably don't have time for questions, um, but if you're interested in any of this material, I encourage you to uh, do some Google searches. Library of Congress, their website has a lot. I, I took most of what uh, I covered here in the War for Independence from uh, their material, but you can go online and look up the Library of Congress and they have tons of stuff. It's very interesting. Um, so thank you for your attention and that's it. <laughs>